Hey guys, thanks for tuning in today to the Unknown Friends podcast. You're listening to season two, episode 25, and today's book review is Charles Dickens's novel Bleak House. I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson of Kitty Wayne Productions, and I'm so glad you've joined me this week. If you enjoy the podcast, please hit that subscribe button, and after today's episode, just leave a quick review to let others know that you enjoyed it. I have been looking forward to today's book review for quite a while. Uh, Bleak House is a novel I love dearly. Probably, I would say, my very favorite Charles Dickens novel if I were forced to choose. And so it is just a delight to get to discuss it today on the podcast. This was, I think, the third or maybe the fourth Dickens novel I ever read. Um, Back in high school, I read Oliver Twist, and I didn't really enjoy it that much. Shocker, I know. And it wasn't until my sophomore year of college, when one of my favorite professors assigned us to read Great Expectations, that I actually fell in love with Dickens. Great Expectations was a completely different experience for me than Oliver Twist. Um, Honestly, I need to return and give Oliver a second chance. I never have. But I just loved Great Expectations, and I distinctly remember that same professor mentioning Bleak House in class when we were reading Dickens, and saying how incredible the book was, and what a huge cast of characters Dickens weaves together in it. And that comment just made an impression on my mind, and I decided eventually that I wanted to read Bleak House for myself. Um, now that I saw from Great Expectations how magical Dickens could be. So I think it was that summer, or possibly a year later, that I read Bleak House for the first time, and it did not disappoint. It is a big book. This summer I reread it in audiobook form, and it was about 35 hours of narration. So it's not short, but I think it's totally worth it. Now, it's always interesting to me which of Dickens' novels people tend to be most familiar with, Um, depending on maybe what your assigned reading was in high school or whatever. You may have read Oliver Twist, like I did, or sometimes Great Expectations is assigned reading. Um, A fair number of people are familiar with A Tale of Two Cities or David Copperfield, and of course, almost everyone at least knows about A Christmas Carol. But those various works come from some very different times in Dickens' writing career. Uh, His style changed over the years, and so Oliver Twist, for instance, came very early in his career, whereas Great Expectations came quite late. Now, personally, I enjoy some aspects of Dickens' early novels. If you remember, I discussed the Pickwick Papers over a year ago in season one of the podcast, and that was his very first novel. Um, But as you'd expect, his writing matured greatly over time and deepened, and he learned how to structure a novel more carefully and how to play with more nuanced themes and stylistic techniques. And so personally, I am more partial to his later novels. Um, So just to make sure we're all on the same timeline, Pickwick was his first novel, followed immediately by Oliver Twist, 
and then you get some obscure and some better-known novels throughout the early stage of his career. Um, the Old Curiosity Shop is one, and A Christmas Carol, among uh, the more famous titles. Where things really start to change is around the time he wrote David Copperfield, which was right at the middle of his career. Uh, David Copperfield is always called his autobiographical novel. It is much beloved. It's very good. And you really see his more mature style and structure developing by this point. He is learning how to design complex, interconnected plots and subplots and how to manage a, a huge cast of characters. Whereas in his early novels like Pickwick, you will sometimes encounter a number of minor characters as the story goes along who just kind of appear and then disappear, and you might never hear from them again. But by the time of David Copperfield, Dickens had begun to perfect the art of an elaborate network of characters that weave in and out of each other in a surprising but purposeful way. Uh, it's really cool how minor characters from the beginning of the novel will show up again in the middle or in the end and make some meaningful connection between other characters or, or between story events. Anyway, this development in his writing is very evident by the time of David Copperfield and then all the rest of his novels afterward can kind of be put on a new level. So Bleak House is his next novel right after David Copperfield. And then, of course, it's later that you get A Tale of Two Cities, um, Great Expectations, and some of my other favorites among his books, Little Dorrit, Our Mutual Friend. Yeah, great stuff. So Bleak House was published serially in monthly installments, as were many of his books, starting in March of 1852, not long after his 40th birthday, and ending in September of 1853, so 19 months. This is a big commitment, right? <laughs> Composing this kind of a piece of literature. I still don't understand how he managed to craft a novel of this size and scope so precisely when he was literally publishing it a few chapters at a time and, and sending it out into the world before he had the rest of the book finished. That takes serious skill and practice. But yes, 1852 to 53, and then afterward it was published in a single volume in late 1853. Now, I might just add 1851, um, the intervening year between the publication of David Copperfield and that of Bleak House, was not a good year for Dickens. His wife was ill, and then both their infant daughter and Dickens's father passed away that year. Um, he was also kind of restless, just not working on a novel at this time. He was still very busy, very busy, as he always was throughout his life. He had his magazine, um, Household Words, that he was running, and by this time, he was a celebrity, so there were all kinds of demands on his time just from all the people he knew. But he wasn't writing a novel until fairly late in the year 1851, when the ideas for Bleak House started coming to him, and he began writing the first chapters, which eventually began going into print in March of 1852. So, that is the immediate context of this novel. 
I'm not going to give you the whole kind of biography of his life like I try to do with most of the authors I discuss. Um, I reviewed Pickwick Papers, like I mentioned before, in May of last year, in the fourth episode of season one. And then I also discussed Little Dorrit in the 24th episode of season one, last October. So between those two book reviews, I have talked a lot about Dickens's life. Um, in my Pickwick review, I focused more on his early years, and with Little Dorrit, I discussed his later years. And then, I guess already today, I've talked a little bit about his middle years, at least what happened with his writing style. So that is actually all I'll say about his life story in today's episode. You can always hear some of the other biographical details I've shared before in those two previous reviews. And for today, I want now to move forward and discuss the plot and characters and themes of Bleak House specifically. So this novel features a vast array of characters whose stories intertwine amazingly. Literally, look up this book online. Just go to the Wikipedia page for it or wherever you can find a complete list of characters. Wikipedia gives a list of what it thinks are the book's major characters and another list of the minor characters, and it identifies 20 major characters and 40 minor. Now, I don't entirely agree with which characters Wikipedia puts on which list, but still, 60 characters, guys. And they are all threads in one complicated, carefully structured, tightly knit tapestry of a story. It's an incredible work of art. But if I had to identify the main characters, I would start with Esther Summerson. Esther is the heroine of the novel and narrator sometimes, we'll get to that in a minute. She was raised without parents by a stringent, unloving woman who told Esther that it would have been better if she'd never been born. So that's nice. But Esther is one of Dickens's characteristically gentle, patient, sacrificial female characters who, despite being the victim of injustice, rises above that and cares selflessly for those around her and gains their devotion and admiration because of it. So Esther is lovely. I would love to talk about her more, but there's not going to be time to talk about everyone at length. Um, and as a young woman, Esther is um, able to leave the care, if care it can be called, of the woman who raised her. And she's taken under the guardianship of a Mr. John Jarndyce, who is kind of the, the fairy godfather of this story, if that's a thing. He is a wonderful, um, slightly eccentric but thoroughly good man, who not only takes Esther under his protection, but also two other young people, Richard Carstone and Ada Clare. Now, what connects these characters originally is that they're all involved in one way or another in a particular lawsuit that has been in court for years upon years and revolves around um, a long-since-dead Mr. Jarndyce, and a number of different conflicting wills, which he wrote at various times and never cleared up. So Richard Carson and Ada Clare are both orphans and wards of the court, and uh, Mr. John Jarndyce, who is a party in the cause, of course, but wishes he weren't, uh, compassionately 
takes both Richard and Ada, as well as Esther, to live with him at his home known as, you guessed it, Bleak House. Now, the reason Mr. Jarndyce wishes he weren't a party in the lawsuit of Jarndyce and Jarndyce is that he has lived long enough and seen enough of lawsuits to believe that no real good can come from the High Court of Justice. He has seen too many people pin all their hopes on receiving an inheritance through Jarndyce and Jarndyce, only to be disappointed and grow old as the suit drones on and on throughout the years because nobody knows what it means or what to do with it. So Mr. John Jarndyce is quite content to let the suit drone on while he lives his life and pays no attention to it at all. And he hopes that his young wards will do the same and will not become caught up in the lawsuit. So these are, I would say, the central figures, but many other essential characters surround these four. Uh, First of all, there are the Deadlocks, Lord and Lady Deadlock, whom um, patrons you met if you listened to my preview episode for the month of July. I read aloud the first two chapters of Bleak House to give you all a taste of Dickens's style and subject matter in this book, and I hope you enjoyed meeting the Deadlocks in chapter two, as well as Mr. Tolkienhorn, who is another important character. He is attorney at law for the Deadlocks, um, who are also parties in the court case of Jarndyce and Jarndyce. Then there is also the poor crossing sweeper, Joe, who just tries to stay out of trouble and, despite himself, gets mysteriously caught up in matters that never should have concerned him. And then there's the former soldier, Mr. George, who similarly gets entangled. He's interesting. Even though he's not uh, like the hero of the story, he is pretty central when you step back and, and look at the network of characters. His story is touched on by almost every other character in the book. It's very interesting how he's kind of a, a point of intersection. Anyway, the actual plot of the story follows numerous paths, as you can imagine. So, of course, we follow Esther and her her personal life, the gradually emerging secret of her parentage, as well as just the good she does in the lives of those around her, the, the many people she meets and takes pity on and helps to rise above their circumstances, as she has risen above hers. We eventually follow the romance of Richard Carston and Ada Clare, and it's ups and downs and twists. We trace a mystery surrounding Lady Deadlock, something in her past, which the lawyer, Mr. Tolkienhorn, begins to track down almost from the book's opening pages. And all the while, the case of Jarndyce and Jarndyce is slogging on in the High Court of Chancery, and character after character gets sucked into it, or affected by it in some way, for good or ill. And the question of whether Jarndyce and Jarndyce will ever be resolved, and if so, how and with what consequences, um, drives much of the novel's storyline. Now, briefly, a word about the book's narrative structure, or probably several words. 
Charles Dickens did some quite experimental things with Bleak House. He alternates back and forth between two different narrators, which sounds like a modern invention, but people were totally starting to do this already in the 19th century. Uh, Remember the woman in white from a few weeks ago? Many different narrators. So Esther Summerson is one of the two narrators in Bleak House, and she narrates her own story from first-person point of view. And that alone is innovative. Charles Dickens had never before written a novel from a female point of view, and he never did again. He, he was anxious that he do his best to get it right and, and narrate convincingly in the imagined voice of a young woman. Some readers think he failed, some think he succeeded. So I will just let you make up your own mind on that point if you choose to read Bleak House. Uh, but so that was one innovation. And then secondly, the other narrator of Bleak House is not a character in the story, just an impersonal, detached, third-person narrator, not unlike what you would see in many novels, except that Dickens wrote this narration in present tense instead of past tense. So you heard this, patrons, if you listened to the preview episode with the first two chapters. Everything is described as currently happening. Fog is thick in London. Uh, The Chancellor sits in his high court of chancery. Present tense narration is not typical. It has become a lot more common in very recent years, but this was super unusual in the mid-1800s. Almost universally, novels were narrated in the past tense. And honestly, for a long time, I was pretty adamantly against present tense novels. I thought they were just kind of a newfangled fad or gimmick. Um, Until I read All the Light We Cannot See, which is in present tense, and completely changed my opinion. I realized that it can be done really well, and, and for a very good purpose. But funnily enough, before I read All the Light We Cannot See, I had already read Bleak House, but I had not realized that it is partially in present tense. It didn't hit me until I reread it this year. I just, it, I'd never noticed it. Which means, of course, that Dickens did it really well. It's unobtrusive. And it fits the story. It fits the detached narrator who is not recounting a personal history, but simply observing and reporting what happens as it happens without any personal involvement or interpretation. So I think it's pretty cool that Dickens was willing to experiment and in fact succeeded with a technique that at the time was highly innovative. And he used present tense again a few times. It appears in some of the chapters of Our Mutual Friends and also I've heard in his unfinished novel The Mystery of Edwin Drood, um, though I haven't read that one for myself yet. Now, there is so much you can talk about with regard to the themes and symbolism and character development in Bleak House, so I'm just going to touch on a few things as quickly as I can, things that stood out to me on this reread in particular. Let me just talk, first of all, about a couple of the side characters that I find especially interesting or insightful in different ways. First, Mrs. Jellyby. She is arguably one of Dickens's most famous minor characters. 
She is famous for what he calls telescopic philanthropy. So she is extremely concerned with mission work in Africa and helping educate the natives of Borja Bulaga, which is a worthy cause. But she is so concerned with the natives of Borja Bulaga that her own household is an absolute wreck. Her children are filthy and ignorant. Neglected does not really even begin to cover it. Her husband is a sad, silent man whom she hardly remembers even exists. And her home is absolutely disastrous. And so Mrs. Jellyby has become rather famous, even though she's just a small side character in the book. Dickens's portrait of her is so succinct and simple and true that she's kind of a classic reference now when you want to describe anyone who is so concerned with helping people out there that they neglect the people here, the people and the things right around them. In fact, this is kind of funny, Edmund Goss, who we discussed last week, actually references Mrs. Jellyby at one point in his book, Father and Son, which I thought was interesting. Now, another small role in Bleak House is that of Harold Skimpole. And here again, Dickens is concisely and scathingly insightful. Skimpole is actually modeled after an acquaintance of his, And Skimpole's thing is that he says he is a child in the ways of the world, particularly in the ways of money. He declares that he's so innocent, he just doesn't understand how money even works, and so he can't be held responsible for his debts and indiscretions. Which, boiled down, of course, means that he is completely irresponsible, and he's a parasite, that demands that his friends constantly help him out of his money difficulties, because he's just too naive to take care of them himself. And while Dickens plays this up to very comic effect in the novel, ultimately he does reveal how dark a character this is. Skimpole views everyone else in the world as responsible for him, and so of course, ultimately, anything that goes wrong is someone else's fault and he ends up denouncing even his greatest benefactors as the most selfish of people. It's actually disgusting. (laughs) But another instance of Dickens's keen perception into how human nature works. Now, there are so many other fascinating, delightful, shocking characters in Bleak House Of course, if you've read Dickens, you know he always comes up with new, vibrant characters in each of his books. He's just this inexhaustible well when it comes to colorful characters. A a few of my favorites from Bleak House would have to be the lawyer, Mr. Guppy, and his mother. They make me laugh so hard. Um, And incidentally, This is a rabbit trail, but the BBC did a pretty excellent adaptation of Bleak House in 2005, I think. It's like eight hours long, quite faithful to the original, and I've really enjoyed watching it. And their portrayal of Mr. Guppy and his mother is so delightful. It's spot on. Anyway, sadly, they did have to omit one other set of characters that I really love from the book, the Bagnet family. 
I understand why the BBC cut these characters. They they just play a small role, but they're really fun. Classic Dickens comedy. And not his dark, satiric comedy, but his warm-hearted comedy. The Bagnets are, are just lovely. But ultimately, um, I think the character that has always stood out to me as the most thought-provoking and memorable in this whole novel has to be Richard Carston, the ward of court whom Mr. Jarndyce takes under his protection along with Ada. Um, G.K. Chesterton, who wrote a lot of nonfiction about Dickens, interestingly, he says that the story of Richard Carston is strictly the one and only great tragedy that Dickens wrote. Chesterton also says he tells anyone who thinks that Dickens was a gross and indelicate artist to read the chapters of Bleak House that are about Richard. His story is indeed a tragedy, and it is told with discernment and realism. I I won't share details and spoil anything, but just generally speaking, Richard struggles to be steadfast. He struggles to settle down to any long-lasting task or place, even. And through him, Dickens compassionately but unflinchingly traces the downfall of a restless man. And this is something that made a deep impression on me when I first read the novel, and on a reread it is still powerful and convicting. Chesterton actually makes another point about Bleak House, which I think makes a lot of sense as I ponder the strong impression Richard's storyline leaves on the reader. Chesterton points out that Bleak House has a domestic title. So many of Dickens's novels are titled after a character, but Bleak House is the only one that carries the name of a place, and specifically of a home. And Chesterton points this out and connects it to the change Dickens has achieved in his writing style by this point in his career. So Chesterton notes that all of Dickens's early novels were rambling stories. And in contrast, he says this about Bleak House. The thing is no longer a string of incidents. It is a cycle of incidents. It returns upon itself. It has recurrent melody and poetic justice. The story circles round two or three symbolic places. It does not go straggling irregularly all over England like one of Mr. Pickwick's coaches. Mr. Jarndyce goes from Bleak House to visit Mr. Boythorn, but he comes back to Bleak House. Miss Clare and Miss Summerson go from Bleak House to visit Mr. and Mrs. Bayham Badger, but they come back to Bleak House. The whole story strays from Bleak House and plunges into the foul fogs of Chancery and the autumn mists of Chesney Wold, but the whole story comes back to Bleak House. The domestic title is appropriate. It is a permanent address. Of course, Chesterton says this beautifully. All in all, Bleak House is a story centered on home in a way unlike Dickens's earlier novels, and really unlike many of his later novels as well. It's kind of unique in the fact that it has this domestic center. And of course, that center is only made possible by the steadfastness 
of some of the main characters, a steadfastness which Richard sadly lacks, but which Esther Summerson and John Jarndyce and others are able to practice. So ultimately, I think Bleak House is a story about many things, but to me, it's most importantly about choosing to be settled in life, choosing to find joy where you are and be diligent and purposeful and serve others, especially those right around you, not just the natives far away in Africa, but your own family members and close friends. One more quotation from Chesterton to wrap up today's episode, uh, because he says things so well. In 1906, he wrote a sort of um, biography or study of Dickens called, shockingly, Charles Dickens. And the very last paragraph of this book is just lovely and ties in very well to the themes of Bleak House in particular, even though Chesterton at this point is talking about Dickens's whole body of work. I'm just going to read you two sentences from this last paragraph. So Chesterton writes of Dickens, This at least is part of what he meant, that comradeship and serious joy are not interludes in our travel, but that rather our travels are interludes in comradeship and joy, which through God shall endure forever. The inn does not point to the road. The road points to the inn. That is all the time we have for Bleak House, so I hope today's discussion has been informative and enjoyable, and I hope if you have the time and the interest that you will read Bleak House for yourself. It's not perfect. In fact, many critics would say it's full of artistic flaws, and even I could talk about a few small things I don't love about it. But overall, it's a novel rich with insight into the human condition and rich with hope for what life can be if we cherish the things that really matter and pursue them with purpose and steadfastness. If you have read Bleak House, I would love to hear your thoughts. Let's turn this monologue into a dialogue. You can message me on Facebook, Instagram, or Patreon, and I would happily discuss this novel further with you. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening today, and come back next week for more about G.K. Chesterton. I look forward to discussing Chesterton's novel, Man Alive, which has some interesting connections with Bleak House. So be sure to tune in again next week. As always, I am your host, Rochelle Ferguson, and you can learn more about me and my writing at kittywamproductions.com. You can also become a patron of the Unknown Friends podcast and access extra content like monthly bonus episodes if you visit patreon.com slash unknownfriends and become a supporter. Thanks for tuning in today and have a great week. 